Good morning too if you're watching online. I know there's quite a few people in our church family who are watching the sermons at home these days because they're caught up with COVID and all that sort of business. Everyone's having their turn. Um, I'd love you to have Mark 14 open in front of you. That'll be really helpful as we continue our series. Uh, we're going to have a, a, a Q&A at the end, uh, just in case there's any questions or any, um, any comments you might want to make, uh, words of encouragement to people, anything like that. There's an outline too in your, uh, where is it, in your bulletin, there we go, so it might be helpful to have that open too in front of you. All right, how about we pray and see um, what God has to say to us this morning from Mark 14. Father, we do thank you so much for your word to us today. We pray that you would avoid any distractions that we might have right now in our minds and that we would focus for the next 20 or so minutes, we would focus on your son, Jesus. Help us to do that, Lord. Amen. Well, we know Australians know the danger of um, bushfire. Uh, we know that. Uh, we've seen it too often. Uh, but we're not the only ones. It's a, a danger that also confronted the American, now I don't really like this word, but pioneers is what they're often called. Um, I don't like it because I think it ignores the indigenous people of, the, of, the, uh, of that, that um, continent. But anyway, we'll stick with it for the time being. Um, that, they, they crossed the rolling plains of the Midwest in search for, for new land. And uh, the, the prairie grass that they would cross, so picture yourself in a David Attenborough type uh, documentary you see the, the, across the prairie grass and so on. It grows really high. It grows to about two metres in, in length, actually. Two metres is not there because I'm not two metres. It's about there. Um, and uh, <laughs> so, it, 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 and when, of course, when summer comes, it would become dry and, and very dangerous. Summer brought storms, and including what's called dry storms. So we, we get these dry storms from time, uh, from time to time. They're just lightning and thunder. And when the lightning struck the ground, the, the dry grass ignited and the fires would streak across these prairie plains faster than anyone could run and certainly faster than a whole, uh, than any pioneer with fully loaded wagons could run. But these pioneers, they faced this threat with great confidence. They learnt from the locals, the local indigenous people. This is how they did it. When a fire was spotted, they would stand uh, with their backs to the wind and then they would light a series of fires that would take off before them. In just a few minutes, they would have a large burnt-out area in, uh, that they could stand with their families and wagons to confidently wait the oncoming fire. So the fire would not burn in the same place twice. Now, we know this is backburning, don't we? Uh, where the fire has already burnt, it would not burn again. The Bible tells us plainly, God's judgment is coming on us all. And we were reminded of this last week, weren't we, from Mark chapter 13. No one can outrun it. Even our best efforts are futile. We cannot save ourselves. Yet there is one place where the fire has already burnt where God's fierce judgment has already taken place. And that, of course, is the cross of Jesus Christ. At the cross, Jesus takes our place and our punishment. If we trust him, we needn't fear the judgment 
to come, the, the fire to come. If we take shelter anywhere else, well, we have no hope. Now today, we're going to continue in Mark's Gospel. As we've, uh, we, and, and we find Jesus crying out to God in the Garden of Gethsemane. He's deeply distressed and troubled, we read. Why? Well, because he is anticipating the following day where he will bear the wrath of God on the cross for our sin, taking himself the, the horror of God's judgment so we can shelter from the oncoming fire. Well, in uh, verses 32 to 42, Mark, reco- Mark records Jesus experiencing a foretaste of the horror of his death. Uh, I'll just check this again, John. That's not quite working for me. So there's just point one on your outline. You can follow on your outline as well. Almost there. Sorry, guys. Should have checked this before. I was busy having lots of fun with um, the musicians. It's quite a blessing. And a bass today too. So I could talk about bass players and musicians for a bit longer, but this is not working for me. That's all right. There's only a few points anyway. Um, Just follow along with me. So uh, Max is on sound for the first time today on on the uh, the sound booth there. So no pressure, Max, but you've got to follow every word I say. Uh, (laughs) He's got it. There you go. Cool. There we go. So that's first of all. So Jesus experiences a foretaste of the full horror of his death. So we're looking at verses 32 to 42. You know, Christians often rightly, I think, describe church as a little taste of heaven. I don't know if you've heard that before. A little taste of heaven. God's people gathering together around his word, encouraging one another in love, hearing the word of God and responding in faith. It's a foretaste of what's to come. It's good. It's really good. That's why I often go on about church being really good. It's a little taste of heaven. Uh, In the garden, a foretaste is what Jesus experiences. But it's not a taste of something good. It's a taste of something horrific. Well, following their their short walk to the Mount of Olives, the disciples and Jesus come to Gethsemane. It's an olive grove uh, at the foot of the Mount of Olives. And if what happened at the Passover meal was astonishing, so that's the first half of chapter 14, you can read that later. If that was astonishing with Jesus washing his disciples' feet, with, with uh, Jesus calling out Judas, uh, all that was going on. If that we thought, man, what a night, unforgettable night, well, what happens here is even more so. Now, all that we have seen so far in our series in Mark's Gospel As we read through Mark's Gospel, we've been told of Jesus' power and authority. We've asked that question, who is this man? So so far, that's what we've seen, Jesus' power and his authority, his boldness in the face of religious opposition, uh, the unstoppable message and mission, his authority over nature, the demonic, sickness and death. We've seen all that, haven't we? The clear statements about his, his impending death and resurrection his authority before his opponents, his control of all events. But here, what do we see? We see a very different Jesus, don't we? Very different than what we've seen so far. Look at verse 33. Jesus is deeply distressed and troubled. Verse 34. My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Verse 35. Jesus actually breaks Jewish prayer protocol. What does he do? He falls to the ground. You see, Jews don't, Jewish men don't pray 
on the ground or fall on the ground. They pray standing up. And he breaks protocol, falls to the ground. Such is his anguish and distress. So what was behind this? What was behind this sorrow? What was the cause of his troubled state? Well, Jesus was coming to terms with the terrible suffering he must endure on the cross. In fact, it was only, it's only here and on the cross itself that Jesus is ever recorded crying out in pain. Those two spots, that's it, here and on the cross. God's wrath, his righteous judgment for our sin will pass over us if you're a Christian person because Jesus bears that wrath through his death. Jesus is our Passover lamb. Uh, Paul uses that language taking us all the way back to God's people in the Exodus uh, when, the, when the angel of death passed over those houses that in, in, as they trusted God they put that lamb's blood on the, the, the doorposts. Jesus is our Passover lamb. He is our sacrifice for our sin. It's a terrible price to bear. The wrath of God for all those who believe in him. Here's how John Calvin put it. Uh, our next little slide, I've got it written up here. It, it's funny sort of language, so you've got to concentrate, but it's worth it, I think. John Calvin, the, the 16th century reformer. His horror was not then at death simpliciter as a passage out of the world, but because he had before his eyes the dreadful tribunal of God, the judge himself armed with inconceivable vengeance. It was our sins, the burden of which he had assumed, that pressed, down, pressed him down with enormous mass and tormented him grievously with fear and anguish. It's, it's, a, it's a good line, good quote. You know, three times we see in this passage, Jesus prayed that the hour, in other words, that, that is his death on the cross, his, the hour might pass from him. And he cries out, Abba, Father. Everything is possible for you. Take this cup from me, yet not what I will, but you will. Jesus asks his father that the cup of wrath, that's an Old Testament expression uh, for God's judgment. He asks that the cup of wrath might be taken from him. But at the same time, what does he do? He expresses his obedience to do his Father's will. So that's the second thing we need to see here, and that's our next point on the, um, on the outline too. Jesus goes purposefully to his death in obedience to his Father's will. I was thinking the other day, what do we do purposefully, you know, with purpose? Well, we might, I don't know, we might go purposefully to the complaints counter at some retail establishment. Um, <laughs> we might um, go purposefully when your number is called to pick up the takeaway. I go purposefully then, very much so. Or to claim the meat tray that you've won at the pub. Yeah, they never dawdle to claim the meat tray. <laughs> yes. To a meeting at work, you might go purposefully to a meeting at work. You might not too. You might go, I'm going to go the other direction. If, um, and I, I know this is true, the teachers in the room will know this for sure. If you walk purposefully as a teacher around the playground, no one will bug you. They won't give you a job. Just walk purposefully and you'll be fine. Um, Jesus goes purposefully to his death. 
He accepts his father's will that he must die. And then Jesus actually indeed strengthened and he sets his mind to the cross. Have a look at verse 41 and 42. After finding the disciples sleeping again, Jesus says, Enough, the hour has come. Look, the Son of Man is delivered into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us go. He comes my betrayer. Let's, let's keep reading. Let's pick things up from verse 43. Because Jesus is still in the Garden of Gethsemane and he's arrested, having been betrayed by Judas. It was later in the evening, probably at midnight. Sort of picture yourself there, if you like. So verse 40, 43, just as he was speaking, Judas, one of the twelve, appeared. With him was a crowd armed with swords and clubs, sent from the chief priests, the teachers of the law and the elders. Now the betrayer, notice how Mark doesn't use Judas anymore, doesn't give a name, he calls him the betrayer. There's something extra, isn't there, in that? Now the betrayer had arranged a signal with them. The one I kiss is the man. Arrest him and lead him away under guard. Going at once to Jesus, Judas said, Rabbi, I wonder what his face was like at that point. And he kissed him. The men seized Jesus and arrested him. Then one of those standing near drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest, cutting off his ear. John records that as being Peter. And verse 48, am I leading a rebellion? Said Jesus, that you have come out with swords and clubs to capture me. Every day I was with you teaching in the temple courts and you did not arrest me. But the scriptures must be fulfilled. Then everyone deserted him and fled. Let's notice a couple of things. Notice in verse 49 that what happened fulfilled the Old Testament scriptures. Scriptures like Isaiah 53 that was read to us earlier. The cross and even the events leading up to it, you see they are part of God's plan. They are divinely ordered events. And notice too, as Jesus predicted back in verse 27, everyone deserted him and fled. Even though they said they wouldn't, they did. They deserted him and they fled. Jesus was alone. Including, speaking of people fleeing, or fleeing uh, the Bible's one and only streaker. There it is, folks, in verse 51. You won't find it anywhere else. Uh, a young man wearing nothing but a linen garment. Now, why he was wearing just a linen, linen garment, we don't know. That's a bit like underwear. Um, that's what he was wearing, and that's what he decided to wear when he went out to the garden of Gethsemane that night with the disciples. He was following Jesus, and when they seized him, so it must have been a bit of a struggle, you know, a bit of a tossing and turning, uh, clothes, was, clothes were ripped off him, and he fled in the nude, leaving his garment behind. Our worst nightmares. Anyway, uh, now what's really interesting here is that most commentators reckon this man was likely Mark himself, leaving his signature on his gospel. Uh, who else would write about this than the person himself? Uh, although whoever it was, it speaks of real eyewitness testimony, doesn't it? This guy was there. Why would he talk about it otherwise? So the disciples' failure... Well, in Jesus' time of need. That's our last point on the outline here. Next slide. Thanks, guys. Uh, there, there was not a lot, there's not a lot good to say about the disciples from this scene, is there, really? And as um, Rod actually uh, mentioned before about the, the sleeping and not staying awake, I wonder how we would have gone if we were there. But I'll get back to that in a moment. 
We're told that Peter, James and John were with him into the Garden of Gethsemane. Uh, They saw how distressed Jesus was, see verse uh, 33. Uh, And Jesus asked them to keep watch and pray, twice in fact, verse 34 and 38. But each time Jesus returns, well, he finds them asleep, see verse 37, verse 40. The reason Jesus gives uh, is their flesh is weak. In other words, their bodies are weak, their flesh is weak. The the contrast with Jesus couldn't be more obvious. What's going on here? Why is this detail put in here? Well, I think it's quite significant, actually. It seems to be the point that Jesus is making is more about spiritual weakness than physical, although it's probably both. Peter, James and John are sinners. And they need Jesus' saving death, well, just like you and I, everyone else. They don't contribute to God's plan of salvation in any way, shape or form. Even in this small way of staying awake and praying, they couldn't do it. They don't do it. You see, the emphasis here is on God's saving work. It's all about Jesus. It's not about the disciples. It's one-sided. Jesus does it all. The disciples do nothing. Jesus accomplishes our salvation with the help of no one. And nor is anyone else fit to accomplish our salvation or have any hand in it. The disciples contribute nothing to the scene and are therefore powerless to help. They're asleep. They're not even praying. Again, this contrast couldn't be clearer when we compare what Jesus did and what the disciples were told to do, and that is pray. This is one of those many occasions where Jesus says, follow me as I pray. Pray our Father, Abba Father. There's a a closeness there, a relational closeness, a love, a, a Father who loves us, who is in control of all things, who's sovereign of all things, even these events. In times of distress and anguish, when our soul is overwhelmed, what do we pray? We pray our Father. In times of trials and temptations and times of darkness, pray like Jesus did, pray our Father. And even when the disciples failed miserably, Jesus did not stop telling his disciples to pray. Isn't that a great comfort? When we fail miserably, what do we do? We've got to pray. That's what Jesus tells us to do. Now, what do we pray then? Well, we pray like Jesus. It's a prayer of trust. Can you see the prayer that Jesus prayed? Lord, not my will, but yours be done. Not my will, but your will. We pray for willing submission and obedience to God's will, even when it's hard. See, on the one hand, we need to understand that Scripture tells us that God's will is being done everywhere. So you could call it his secret will, if you like, um, his plan. As sovereign, God is controlling all things. We sung about in our second song, the Lord is King. God is controlling all things and when we pray your your will be done, what we're doing, we're entrusting ourselves to God. Uh, We pray, of course, this in in the Lord's Prayer. We entrust ourselves to God no matter what the outcome. We welcome what he has in store. And sometimes we see God's sovereignty clearly after the fact. So we look back and we see how God has guided, guided us. We could call that God's retrospective guidance. But on the other hand, God has also revealed his will for us in Scripture, in the Bible. 
So, for example, in Scripture, our Father's revealed will, well, if you want to put it down to just a few words, is be like Jesus. That's the Lord's revealed will in Scripture. Make us like Jesus. That's what we pray. Make me like Jesus. And so I've got a few examples up in the first. The first one I'll put on the screen is um, Romans 12, 1 and 2. Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Do not conform to the pattern of this, uh, this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you'll be able to test and approve what God's will is. His good and pleasing, perfect will. So God's will for our lives is self-sacrificial worship. There's God's will for our lives. We pray for that. Uh, next one, please. Um, God's revealed will in Scripture is to make us like Jesus. So evangelism, sharing the, sharing the good news of Jesus with others, is God's will for our lives. So Ephesians 5, 15 to 18. Be very careful then how you live, not as unwise but as wise, making the most of every opportunity because the days are evil. Therefore do not be foolish but understand what the Lord's will is. Like a drunk on wine which leads to debauchery, instead be filled with the Spirit. So here's God's will for our lives, making the most of every opportunity. Um, be careful how we live. Next one. Holiness is also God's will for our lives. So 1 Thessalonians 4.3. It is God's will. There you go. That you should be sanctified, that you should avoid sexual immorality. So sanctification is another word for holiness, being set apart to be like Jesus. Last one. Being content is also God's will for our lives. Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. When we pray God's will, we pray for those things. When we pray your will be done, we're praying to be more like Jesus, to be more content, to be holy, like set apart from others. We're praying that we would tell others the good news of Jesus and that the whole, our whole lives would be lives of worship. That's what we're doing when we pray your will be done. Things like what we've just seen. You know, one of the most, in fact, one of the most greatest, I think the comf most comforting things about understanding God's will is, is that he's taken away, <clears throat> he's taken away the guesswork. I've met many Christians who are paralysed with fear about whether something is God, the will of God or not. The answer is easy. Be obedient to God's word found in scripture, his revealed will. That's the will of God. And then make a decision. <laughs> make a decision. Go for it. Be obedient to God's word. Make a decision. There's the will of God. Uh, a great American author, Kevin DeYoung, has written this great little book called Just Do Something. And it's about that topic. It's a little book too. It's great. Just do something. Be obedient to the word of God. His revealed will. Make a decision. We don't need to look for signs. That diminishes the word. That, that actually diminishes the gift of God's word to us. It when we look for signs the whole time, what we're doing is we're minimising scripture. We don't want to do that. Instead, let's raise scripture to what it truly is, the revealed word of God. And it's relevant simply because it is the word of God. Okay, well friends, um, in a couple of weeks, a uh, couple of weekends, we celebrate Easter. On uh, Easter Sunday, we'll celebrate new life in Jesus. Salvation is secured. Death is defeated. On Good Friday, a few days before, with great thanksgiving, we'll remember Jesus' death on the cross where he bore the wrath of God so that we might live and be forgiven. Where he provided the ultimate shelter from the fire that's coming. At Gethsemane, 
Jesus got a foretaste of that fire. And as dreadful as he knew it would be, in obedience to his Father's will, he went to the cross and he gave up his life for you and for me. 1 Peter 3.18 says, For Christ died for sins once and for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. How about we pray? And then we'll see if there's any uh, comments or questions. I'm going to pray that, that what we've seen today doesn't wash over us. Let's pray. Father, we, um, uh, we thank you for your word to us today. Many in this room have heard this before. We know of your goodness and kindness to us. We know of your grace and mercy. We know of your son's death for us on the cross. And so, that, Lord, that makes it easy just to let it wash over. Another Easter, another sermon on the cross. Lord, we pray today that's not the case. We pray that we'd give you great thanks for giving us your son. And Lord, Lord Jesus, we thank you that when you prayed, not my will but yours be done, we pray that in obedience you went to the cross and gave yourself up for us. Amen.